If you want to turn with me to the book of Jonah, this is where you'll find our Old Testament reading for today. Be reading from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17, through the end of chapter 2. You can find it in the Pew Bibles on page 774. Hear then the word of the Lord. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish. And it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I've been thinking a lot about the book of Jonah and about the prophet Jonah. It's such an interesting little book. It's an interesting little story. And a lot of us are, are somewhat familiar with it. right? We know the, the general outline of the story, but I think there's a lot of details we sometimes miss. The name Jonah means dove. And when you have a story that involves a large amount of water, sailing in a boat, and a dove, what does that make you think of? You think of the flood. So this is a flood story. You think of the ark. It's an ark story. The book of Jonah is very intentionally tied to the story of Noah. I think, by the way, that's why if you, you know, read through Jonah, you'll regularly see how the animals are mentioned alongside of the people, that the animals were saved, not just the people. And it keeps saying that over and over. And God looks upon the people of Nineveh and cares for them and also their livestock and also their cattle. I think that's because it's a, it's a Noah story. It's a story just like the ark. Now, you know this story. The story of Jonah. Jonah flees the command of God to go and preach to Nineveh. He flees in, in some sense, a completely different direction from where he's supposed to go. And so God sends a storm that is threatening to destroy the ship, the sailors on the ship, and Jonah himself. And it only ceases when Jonah is thrown overboard. And the the men who throw him overboard are fearful of doing this because they treat the fact that he's a prophet of the Most High God more 
more respectfully than Jonah himself does. But nonetheless, they do it in the end. And as soon as they do, as soon as Jonah hits the water, the storm ceases, the waves cease. And we're told that a great fish comes and swallows Jonah. Not a whale, it does not say whale, but a great fish, a large fish comes and swallows up Jonah. And now we tend to read that as if these things just happen one after the other, because they come that way, right? One sentence, then here's the next sentence, and he was swallowed up by a great fish. And we read it as if this was almost instant, right? The fish is waiting, the moment he hits the water, there's the fish. But actually, when we read Jonah's prayer, we see that it was much longer before he was swallowed. That the fish that comes and swallows him is, is in a sense, the grace of God. Jonah describes where he was as in the belly of Sheol, in the heart of the seas. Verse 5 again says, the waters closed in over me to take my life, the deep surrounded me. So he's completely surrounded by water. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. Where is he? He's at the very bottom of the sea, at the root of the mountains. Where, where is the root of the mountains? It's at the bottom of the sea. Seaweed is wrapped all around him. So for all intents and purposes, Jonah was dead. He was there at the bottom, and the Lord saved him. We think of this, this fish that swallows Jonah as maybe a kind of judgment, and in a sense, there's there's that element to it. But it really is God's kindness to Jonah. It's the means by which God took him from where he was headed to where he actually needed to go. The ship wasn't going where he was supposed to, and so God, by his grace, took him where he should. Now, I bring all of this up because the Lord Jesus speaks about the prophet Jonah You'll remember, maybe, that the scribes and Pharisees one day asked Jesus for a sign. They wanted a sign from him. And what's interesting, I was just rereading this account last night, and they asked for this sign just after Jesus has healed the man with a withered hand. So he's just taken a man who had a hand that did not work at all, and he completely healed him. And it's then that the scribes and Pharisees say, well, give us a sign of who you are, right? How do, how do we know who you are? How do we know we can trust you? This is picking up in Matthew 12, after they've asked Jesus. It says, but Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The sign of Jonah was that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And so Jesus would spend three nights 
in three days and three nights rather in the heart of the earth that is to say in death in Sheol right in the bottom of Sheol in the pit in Hades he would die but what happened to Jonah after three days and three nights he returned what happened to Jesus after three days and three nights The New Testament reading and sermon text today comes from 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be reading verse 1 through 11. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 961. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. This is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. Now I'm going to admit that I wrote this sermon in the middle of the night because it seemed like the only time I could this week uh, in between sick children. And so uh, I'm just hopeful that this makes sense, that you're able to take away some of this. And if you can, if it is coherent at all, it is only by the grace of God. Now Paul begins this section of 1 Corinthians saying that he wants to remind the brothers of the gospel that I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand. And that's my desire today as well, that you would be reminded of the gospel. I know that you know the gospel already, but it's good that we should hear it again. And that not only should we hear it again, but that we would hold fast to it. That's what we want today. We want to be able to hold fast to the gospel. Now, often when we think about the gospel, we think primarily about Jesus' death. We think of his crucifixion, of his dying on the cross. And it's, it's not uncommon to maybe hear somebody say, well, I shared the gospel with somebody, and what they shared was, Jesus died for you. And that's well and good. That is a, that's a fine thing to share. That is a part of the gospel message. But if that's where you leave it, If that's where it ends, then you've not actually shared the gospel. 
if Jesus is still dead, if all he did was die, then there is no good news. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But, but apart from that resurrection on the third day, you would still be dead in your sins and without hope in the world. The resurrection then is central to the gospel, to the good news. And this is what we're going to be focusing on today, that on the third day, Christ rose again from the dead. And apart from this, there is no gospel. Jesus Christ truly died, he was truly buried, and he truly did rise from the grave. And it's in him then that you can have newness of life, that you can be reborn and made new and recreated because he rose again. So this is how we're going to proceed through this text. First, we're going to, to see how the resurrection is an historical reality. Right? It, it happened in history. Next, we'll look at how, because of that, it is also then a life-changing reality. And thirdly, then, how this is, in fact, the gospel. So first, the resurrection of Christ is a historic reality. In the shortest form, I think it'd be accurate to say that the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And of course, there's more that can be said than that, right? There's, there's more that can be said about what Christ came and did and accomplished. There's more that can be said of what the scripture teaches about the nature of the kingdom of God. There's so much more that can be said. But this is the gospel itself, the gospel message. And that's what Paul says here. Right, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Notice a few things uh, about this. First is that Paul says this is of first importance. This is the most important, the most central truth. This is what Paul thought was primary. What, if you read the whole of the scriptures, right, you think of all of what the scripture teaches, what is central, what is the most important? Are some things more important to know than others? Yes, the most important thing is this. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins, for the forgiveness of sins. There's so many other things that you you can and that you should learn, right? Christian maturity is in growing from that point, right? Allowing the, the seed of that gospel to then grow and to change every aspect of our lives. The scripture speaks in principle about everything. And so that's not it, but that is of most importance, of first importance. That is what you must know. Second, he says that he delivered this just as he had received it. Paul is not the originator of this message. In fact, he received it. He, he received much of this from Jesus Christ himself. 
after he was blinded on the road to Damascus. But it's not as though Paul or any of the apostles were just making these things up. This is one of those silly ideas that only so-called enlightened modern men, right, scientific man could think of, that religions are formed on the basis of some kind of fairy tale, but somebody tells it maybe really convincingly, and that's why these things took place, right? Christianity, this is just, it's just, it's just a story, and some people told the story, and those backwards people back in the day, they just believed it because they just believed anything. That's absurd. That's, that's a silly idea. For something like Christianity to start and to upend the entire world, right, to replace almost all major religious systems in its time, to such an extent, too, that today almost all religious systems in some way even if they're non-Christian, reflect Christianity in some capacity or were stemmed in some part from Christianity as a, as a cult off of Christianity. And for Christianity then to become dominant in the Roman Empire and in history ever since, for that to happen just because a few men were really good at telling stories, that is an absurd idea. No, Paul was not making anything up. He was delivering what he had received, the story of Jesus Christ himself. And what he received is what we've been saying. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, he says. Not sins generally, right? Jesus' death was not a a general death. He died for our sins, for your sins. It was personal. He took you with him, not some generic ideal humanity. He took you with him when he went to the cross. And your sin, right, when you sinned this morning and you realized it when you came into church, you realized that you had been in sin, that sin, he took it with him on the cross, right? So our sins, he took our sins. He died for our sins. He died and he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Death, burial, and resurrection. And all of this is done in accordance with the scriptures. This was not new or novel. This was always the plan of God. All of this was consistent and coherent with everything that God had revealed up to this point. Right? This was always where it was all going to lead, where it was all going to end. If it wasn't, right, if we, if we have the Old Testament, which is most of what Paul is speaking of here, and then Christ comes and he just changes it all, and then we're to just throw all that out, right, God changed the plan, it's totally different now, then we would have good reason to question all of it. How could it be that God just changed his plan? How could it be that, that God did something totally different than what he said he was going to do? That's not what happened. All of this happened in accordance with the scriptures. It all happened in a coherent fashion from start to finish. God had one plan from the beginning, and it's now carried out. Now, I haven't said this yet, but in 1 Corinthians, one of Paul's main concerns, and especially why he begins to talk about the resurrection in chapter 15, is because there were some who were denying the resurrection, either 
of Christ or of people in general, right? They were denying the possibility of an actual historic resurrection. And he'll go on to say many reasons why everything falls apart without the resurrection. But that's why he's spending a significant amount of time detailing all of the witnesses of the resurrection. Because this is not just an idea or some ethereal reality, you know, something that you can think about and it makes you feel good. No, this happened. Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. And he says, here are all of the witnesses. And he just carries on as though it's just, it's just part of the gospel. Because the gospel is, is a historic event. It's something that actually happened. And so he just carries right on through. Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. There were witnesses. And Paul's list of witnesses is really, it's really fascinating in a lot of ways. Not all of these events that he mentions, the, the appearing of Christ to these people is mentioned in the Gospels or in the book of Acts. But Paul also is not trying to give an exact detailed account, trying to lay out exactly everybody who saw the risen Christ, right? In fact, he says, first he appeared to Cephas. Well, we know that Jesus didn't first appear to Cephas, to Peter, right? First was Mary at the tomb. But, but Paul's not trying to do that. He's just laying out these authoritative witnesses that people could go to. Still teachers in the church, still alive, still around, or at least some of their writings are still around if they weren't. And so people can go and investigate and find out, is this true or not? The focus then is on, on the authority of those who he's speaking of. Right, that they were apostles and disciples that had, had actually interacted with and seen the risen Christ. Jesus appeared to Peter and the twelve. The twelve is a collective name for the, the twelve disciples, even after Judas was gone. They still were just referred to as the twelve. He mentions James, as if they just they know who that is, right? He doesn't explain anything about it. Everybody knows who James is. Now, this was not. Uh, James, the son of Zebedee, who was one of the twelve. No, this is James, the son of Joseph, the leader in the church in Jerusalem. Paul includes all of the apostles, he says, right at the end. Everybody, right? Everybody who had been commissioned by the resurrected Christ, which is part of what it meant to be an apostle. And lastly, he mentions himself as an eyewitness. The resurrected Christ met with Paul on the road to Damascus, blinded him in the light of his glory. And so he, he saw him. He was commissioned by him. He met the resurrected Lord. And this was the experience of the apostles. The apostle John in 1 John puts it like this. He says, that which was from the beginning 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And what he's saying is, we heard him speaking. The resurrected Christ, we, we heard him, right? Hearing, it's, it's a physical, earthly event. This is not a vision that they had. No, he's right here. Right? He's in front of us. We heard him with our ears. We saw him, right? We saw with our own eyes and we touched him, right? We, we felt his scars. We, we knew that this was him. We're not making this up. The resurrection happened in history. Jesus did truly rise from the dead. And if all the resurrection was, was just an ideal, right? It's, it's just an idea that makes us feel better about ourselves or maybe gives us a little motivation. If that's all that it was, then it, it doesn't matter at all. It does nothing. It affects nothing. But in fact, Jesus really did rise from the dead. And it doesn't even matter how you feel about that fact, right? Whether or not you feel anything about it, whether or not you know it or not, right? Whether or not you like it or not, it doesn't matter. It matters for you, right? It matters that you come and worship the resurrected Lord. But in the sense that it is a historic reality, it doesn't matter, right? You could have never been born and this still happened because it happened in history. The gospel would be impotent and worthless if this did not truly happen. But it did happen. Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead, and we have many eyewitnesses that have written about it. I'm convinced that the only reason why in in various kinds of, you know, mystical or, or, you know, often what happens is, you know, within different strands of progressive Christianity, one of the first things to go is things like the resurrection, right? Can't believe in, in the resurrection anymore, right? Can't have to get rid of any kind of miraculous event from the scriptures. And so the resurrection goes. But there's still this thought that, oh, the resurrection, it's still a nice idea, right? It still teaches us something about, you know, how we are supposed to live to a higher reality or, or these sorts of things, right? It's always vague. It's never, it's never clear what exactly it would mean or how it would help us. But I'm convinced that the only reason why that even holds weight with some people is actually because the resurrection really did happen in history as an actual event. Because if it never happened, if, if Jesus had never risen from the dead, if there was no such thing as resurrection in history, then I don't think that we would even see that as a good idea because it would be so outside of what is even remotely possible or real. But either way, it is a historical reality. And because it is historical, because it, it happened in history, because it really happened... It's because of that that it is also then a life-changing reality. Look at what Paul says about his own life in verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Paul speaks about the way that God's grace had completely transformed him. 
which in this context is further testimony to the powerful truth of Jesus' resurrection. Paul not only witnessed Jesus, but he witnessed him when he was on his way to persecute Christians. Right? He witnessed him as an ardent opponent of Christ. Not as somebody who was interested in belief, not as somebody who was seeking him, completely against. And that's when he met Christ. He sees himself now because of that as unworthy, which is why he puts himself at the bottom of the list. Why was he unworthy? Because he persecuted the church of God, he says. Paul had been a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he hated Christians and thought that he was just and right in hating Christians. He thought that he was serving God by throwing them in prison and standing over their executions. Last week I mentioned that there there are times when people, when they feel justified, when they feel like they're doing what is right, they're often the most vicious, right? They can be the most violent because they believe what they're doing is good and righteous and pleases God. And that was Paul. He believed that what he was doing was being zealous for the true God. He was presiding over the murder of Christians, persecuting the church. But that same man became an apostle. The the same man that was doing that became an apostle, not only an apostle, but an apostle to the Gentiles, who, as a, a religious leader in amongst the Jews, he would have despised, right? These were the dogs. He would have despised them. But he becomes not only an apostle of Christ, an apostle to the Gentiles, not only that, but he has to undergo all kinds of persecution, all kinds of mockery, all kinds of trial, all kinds of imprisonment. And in doing all of these things, he doesn't even take the benefit that he had a right to as an apostle, which was provision from the church. Right, taking money from the church so that he would be able to focus his time on that. No, on top of all this, he also didn't worked extra hard so that he'd provide for himself so as not to set a stumbling block before anybody. The, the same man that was persecuting the church is now doing all of that. Why? Why would he do that? For a, just a story? For just a fairy tale? No, because he met the resurrected Christ. Because the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is a life-changing reality. The only way that you explain Paul is that Jesus really met with him. That he really rose from the dead. That he had a, a historical resurrection. Which means not only is it worthless to try to stop the spread of Christianity, but it would also mean that there is all value in believing it and, and doing everything you can to propagate that truth. That's exactly what we see with Paul. And, and Paul wasn't the last one to see the life-changing reality of the gospel. That is something that has happened down through history that continues to happen today, where God takes even the, the vilest of sinners, right, those who hate the church the most, and will often change their hearts so that they would become apostles of a kind. This is the message of the resurrection. This is the message of the gospel. Not just that Christ died, but that he rose again. 
And this is a reality that, that changes lives, that brings new and vibrant spiritual life to everyone who believes. This is the gospel. What does Paul say? Verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. He says it doesn't really matter who preached the message. Right? In a sense, it doesn't matter who you hear it from, whether then it was I or they. What matters is that message. Right? This was the nature of Paul's authority as an apostle. This was the nature of, of apostolic authority, of what Jesus commissioned the apostles to do. The apostles played a particular role and Christ gave them a particular commission, which included a, a particular authority that they had. But the focus of that authority was on the proclamation of the resurrected Christ. Their authority was tied to the message that they preached and taught. If they strayed from that message, if they strayed from that gospel, they, they no longer had the authority behind them. Notice, for instance, Peter's at the top of, of Paul's list. And that's because Peter had a particular role with a particular authority amongst the apostles. Right? You see this in the Gospels. You see that you know, Jesus has many disciples that follow him. Of those many, he has 12 that are the 12. They're, I mean, they're, they're the ones that are closest to him. Of those 12, there are three. Peter, James, and John that get to be with him in... Uh, special circumstances like the transfiguration. Not all are privy to that. And of those three, he has a particular relationship with Peter, right? the one who would deny him three times and yet who he would speak to after his resurrection to feed the sheep of God. And so Peter plays a particular role. He has, in, in, in what Paul is writing here, Peter has a greater apostolic authority in a sense than Paul sees himself having. But the moment that Peter refused to eat with Gentiles and thus by his actions denied the gospel, Paul had no problem confronting him publicly in front of everybody because he had strayed from this message, right, from this truth. What matters is the preaching of this message. Them or I, Paul says, we share the same message, the message of Jesus' resurrection. So we preach and so you believed. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel that you should be reminded of today. That Jesus died for your sins. That he was buried. But on the third day, he rose again from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. And go back with me to the very beginning of this passage. To verse 1 and 2. Remember, Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you unless you believed in vain. As with the Corinthians, I think it's fine for me to say you have received the gospel. Right? This is something that you have believed. This is why we're here. Right? This is why we, we come and we worship God in this way because you have received the gospel. The, the message of the resurrected Christ. As with the Corinthians, I think that I can say that you, 
you are those who stand in this gospel, right? In this gospel, you also stand firm, right? You've remained steadfast in your belief in the resurrection of Christ. You've, you've continued to believe. So then, as with the Corinthians, you should heed the warning that Paul says. He says the gospel is also that by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. In other words, you can be confident that God is at work saving you. You can be confident that he is is continuing to transform you from one glory to another, right? Renewing you in the image of Christ because of that gospel, right? Because you hold fast to that gospel. As long as you hold fast to that gospel, Otherwise, you have believed in vain. The gospel is the power unto salvation for all who believe. This means that Jesus Christ is using the preaching of that gospel continually to save you. But the warning is that you must not lose the gospel. You must not lose the resurrection. You must not deny this. You must hold fast to the truth. It's not enough to have received it at one point if you do not hold fast. Paul's concern again was that some in the church in Corinth were denying the possibility of resurrection. And he's warning them that to deny any part of this gospel, right, everything that is of first importance that he said, to deny any of that is to deny all of it. To deny any piece of it, to remove any piece of it, is to deny all of it. And to deny the possibility of salvation at all. If Jesus is still dead and reading his words simply makes you feel better about yourself, again, congratulations, that means nothing. It means nothing. None of it matters if that has happened. The gospel that will save you is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And to remove any piece of it, or to add anything to it, is to deny it. And I don't know that our problem will primarily be denying the resurrection, denying the possibility of the resurrection, denying that, that it is a, a historical event that took place. Maybe that is. Maybe that is a challenge for some of you. And then you should know that there's nothing without it, right? There, there's, there is nothing of value in Christianity at all if Jesus did not rise from the dead. If he did not rise from the dead, Paul will go on to say we are, we are the most to be pitied. There's no gospel without the resurrection. Jesus truly died for your sins. He truly was buried. He truly rose from the dead. You need to believe all of this, right, and hold fast to it. But maybe our temptation is more so to think that this isn't enough. Right? Paul says this gospel is what is saving you. But we might say, well, but it's not, it's not quite enough. Right? We need something more. We need to add something more. There needs to be more me a part of this. This doesn't say anything about what I do or my place in the gospel. There should be more of that. Or maybe we think, well, this isn't, it's just not exciting enough really 
We've heard that message before. We need more than just a simple message. We want the signs and the wonders to believe, just as the scribes and the Pharisees wanted from Jesus when he was preaching to them. Or maybe this isn't enough because it doesn't speak to our ideals, right? It doesn't speak to the the things that we want to see happen in this world. It doesn't speak to our sentiments about justice or equity, about political programs or economics. It doesn't speak to our moral sensibilities, right? How we're supposed to dress or how we're supposed to speak, what's okay, what's not okay to watch or to take part in in the world. And so we want to add things to this message. But Paul says this message, this gospel is what is saving you. None of these other things do. We said the Bible speaks on a lot of other things, but none of it is what Paul says is saving you. None of it is of first importance. None of these other things are a historical, life-changing reality like the gospel is. Or maybe we think the gospel is just some, it's a one-time event, right? we stop at the received part, right? You received, this is the gospel you received. And then we stop there. Or maybe, you know, yep, the gospel you received and stand it, but that's it, right? It's a one-time event. I said a prayer or I responded to an altar call. I raised my hand once, but that's just the starting point, right? Now it's, now it's done. No, Paul says this is, this is what continues to be your salvation. This is what continues to save you is this same message. Brothers and sisters, this is why we regularly declare our faith together in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why we're always returning to the message of the gospel, because this is where salvation is found. It's only in Christ, the one who died, who was buried, and who rose again. So let that be a warning to you. Let it be a reminder to you You must receive, you must stand in, and you must continue to hold fast to this gospel, the gospel of our resurrected Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we do pray that as our risen Savior, who is is present by your Spirit with us even now, that you would strengthen us in the power of the resurrection that you would give us a supernatural faith and boldness, knowing these things to be true. That where we have doubts, you would would remove those from us. That we could move on into maturity of faith without any doubt. We pray, Father, that where we have been weak in our lives, not reflecting you as we ought, that you by the power of your resurrection, would empower us for greater ministry, for greater glory, for for more greatly reflecting your nature and your character. Help us, Lord, to receive your word, to stand upon it, and to hold fast to it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.